This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. Today's episode features an interview with Daniel Engelbretson, Director of Growth Marketing and Demand Generation at Phenonic. On this episode, we're getting our master's in ABM. Daniel talks about how he's been able to drive exponential growth at Phenonic using ABM and what the best practices are for getting the most out of an ABM strategy. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is created by the team at Mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click the link in the show notes. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have, on the other line, Daniel, what's going on? Hey, how's it going? It's going pretty good. I'm uh, I'm enjoying the nice weather, but I'm a little worried about this storm coming in. <laughs> I know, no kidding. I was just on the East Coast. I, I was like... Got out of there. Hopefully, everybody stay, stays safe. We have a awesome interview coming up. I'm super excited to talk to you about ABM. We have gotten some ABM 101. We've talked to some uh, some industry leaders in ABM, some of the vendors, some other folks doing it. But this is our master's class. You're you're going to give us our uh, our master's degree in ABM here. You're using ABM framework. Actually, Salesforce's ABM framework. We'll talk about that a little bit. We'll talk about how to do innovative B2B marketing. But before we get into any of that, how did you get in marketing in the first place? That's a good question. You know, if I take it all the way back to undergrad, I literally selected marketing because it was speaking intensive and uh, that's that's no problem for me. So I had moved out of uh, computer science into entrepreneurship and then out of entrepreneurship into, into marketing. But after I got into marketing, um, I found that I really enjoyed it, and some of the uh, coursework that I did had me doing projects in the community for a children's gym and stuff like that. And I, I kind of enjoyed being a part of the the vision that a brand has and making that come to life and and seeing the results. And so that took me into a professional career around marketing, which about the time I was coming into marketing. Digital was was really a hot topic, and and getting after SEO and pay per click was a a very hot topic. So I found myself getting into the technology side of of B two B marketing, which was great for me because, as I mentioned, I started out in computer science because I had a love for technology, and uh, so when I got to marry the, the the relationship side of of marketing with the technology side of marketing, it was kind of a perfect fit for me. And now I really enjoy using the technology to solve problems and, and the, the side of marketing that lets me you know, understand and talk to and solve problems for people. Tell me a little bit about your role as a director of Phenonic. What is the scope of your responsibilities? And, and also for our listeners who might not know, a little bit more about the company. Sure. So Phenonic, I guess you would still call us a startup. We, we've been a startup for, I guess, about 10 years now. So I don't know if you can still qualify as a startup. But uh, we've raised just around 200 million to explore thermoelectric applications for alternatives to heating and cooling. 
So in layman's terms, we make computer chips that can be as small as the tip of a pen and uh, maybe as large as the palm of your hand. And they get hot and cold and you can use them to do things like create climate control applications or refrigerators or freezers or uh, laser transceivers, you know, whatever, whatever you want to do. So we're creating alternatives to incumbent technology that heats and cools. And it's created some really interesting applications. And my role at Phenonic has been I essentially consult with uh, the various business owners uh, inside the, the different product groups or verticals that we have those owners on. They have objectives they're trying to meet around product they want to sell and revenue targets they want to hit and markets they want to enter. And I help them craft the campaigns and the messaging to get after those segments. And then I also, you know, where needed, buy or source the technology or the vendors to solve whatever whatever problem we're trying to solve as we're entering whichever market. So I spend a lot of time designing and building and implementing B2B marketing strategies to explore different markets. So walk me through when you first heard about ABM or, you know, started or maybe you already knew about it and you were starting to think about that it would be a really obvious fit for, for Phenonic. What were you thinking? How were you going to pitch this internally? Uh, what were your beliefs about ABM? That's also a great question. And I can't tell you the number of times I've heard somebody say something to the effect of, I've always been doing ABM. And, you know, for in a lot of ways, a lot of good marketing, B2B marketing has been ABM for a long time. You're trying to say the right thing to the right account at the right time. And that's, that's just good marketing. And I totally agree with that. The difference, I think, in the last few years is the technology that exists and the access to the audience that that, de- that, that technology gives you. And you know, having many years in digital marketing, running your AdWords campaigns or whatever tactics you might be running to engage prospective buyers, and then seeing some of this technology coming up in the 2015-16 time, time frame where you were starting to hear about, you know, cookie-based programmatic display and some of the predictive, you know, data that was out there to help you find the right accounts and some of that early application of technology to help you hone in on who you should be talking to and, and actually getting your message in front of them. The light bulb kind of goes off, hey, if I really could only spend my ad spend on the accounts that I know I want to target, what could that do for me? And so, you know, as I started getting more and more exposure to that, it really, so much of my job has been about optimizing the funnel, optimizing spend, optimizing business process. And so much of BV marketing is optimization. And when the technology started coming along that either automated out or dramatically changed the pieces of the equation that you're optimizing, it it was extremely interesting to me. And when I kind of came across my first real exposure into the tech, the tech stack that I really got deep with was uh, Terminus ABM. And I, and that was actually at a, uh, my last job. And we were exploring programmatic uh, account-based display uh, to target key accounts for very specific new technology applications. And I learned a lot about it and it was very interesting to me. And so when I took the job at Phenonic, which I've been here a little over two years now, 
I actually came to the interview basically saying that I wanted to do ABM and if we could align on that before I start, it would be a good fit for me. And if we couldn't align on that before I start, then it's probably not a good fit for me. So, you know, I, I almost explicitly took a new job to explore ABM uh, in earnest uh, because I, I saw what I thought was a lot of potential to change the fundamentals about how you go go to market from a marketing perspective. And I was, I was very interested to get after that and get after it hard. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We, we hear from a lot of marketing leaders, like, you know, don't arrive with like a fixed playbook uh, and say, Hey, this is exactly the plays that we're going to run. And it's funny because, uh, you know, I would argue that, you know, ABM isn't, isn't the playbook, right? You've said before it's, it's the strategy, not the tactic, right? So I'm curious, like, how is that, how is that received within the organization and say like, again, it might just feel new or maybe it feels old and is, and is common sense, or maybe it's, you know, not so much common sense, but it is a pretty fundamental shift for, for people to be able to rethink the actual strategy behind their marketing dollars. Yeah, totally understand what you're saying. And I I would take it back to optimization and so many different campaigns that I've run in my life where, you know, marketing could not have done a better job. We killed it on all the metrics and we generate the leads and we pipe them over to sales and sales either does or does not execute on those leads. And in the pre-ABM days for me, one of the, I guess, last major barriers so to optim- to really getting the optimization was the degree to which sales would engage with you and actually follow up on the leads that you generated. And a number of times across a number of roles, you know, we would deliver what we would perceive to be very high quality, amazing leads and nothing would happen to them. Yeah. And that was because fundamentally marketing was not aligned with sales. And when in one way or another, and that's one of the hot topics in the world of ABM is sales and marketing alignment. And so one of the big shifts that I certainly have taken to heart is how and when and where do you align with sales to eliminate that last hurdle of, of optimization in the funnel and make sure that every all of the output coming from marketing is actionable output. And so you take that message alongside the technology makes new things possible message, which the technology just didn't didn't necessarily exist a few years ago to do some of these things. And it's now a much easier conversation to know who you're targeting, what you're getting, what's happening good, where is it going, what should sales do with it, etc. And so when I came to Bananic, my most recent role, uh, I, it was a good fit for ABM out the gate because the product that we make is not super well known in the world because it's somewhat new. And the, the number of people who would be interested in it is a fairly small pool. And so it was already a good, at least for one of the verticals, a really good use case for ABM. And so sitting down with the sales partner and saying, what should I be saying and who should I be saying to and which account should I be targeting was a natural fit. And when we tried to apply that to some of the more traditional verticals like healthcare life science, we were able to apply some of the learnings from, from the smaller, more niche verticals into the broader verticals. So 
we started putting in process to line up with sales on the, the metrics before we started and the message before we started and the content would get approved before created with sales before you even go to market all to improve sales's buy-in on what we're doing and yeah, I guess for initially it was about sales as buy-in on what we're doing, but over time it's been less about quote unquote buy-in and more about understanding that there's distinct value that marketing brings to the table and there's distinct value that sales brings to the table when you're designing and executing your campaigns. And sometimes the the political barriers or the process barriers or the department barriers that exist in companies make it really hard for the two parties to sit down and get that value out of each other. And so, you know, for me at Phenonic and getting started, and really what I would say to anybody getting started is the first step is education and just getting everybody on the same page of what's even possible. Because as quote unquote new as ABM is to the marketer out there, imagine how new it is to the sales guy out there. It's a totally different ballgame. And so there's a lot of onus on the marketer to just fundamentally educate the business on what's possible and help and help apply apply some of that thinking to what can be done and move the sales team along with you to to get that rolling. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's a lot that's written about about sales marketing alignment, but at the end of the day, like the first part of uh of the first part of alignment is they don't even care that it's called ABM. Yeah. Like they, they right? right. Like they, they don't even care what the thing is. They care about the results, right? So if yep. you're if off the start of it, it's like saying, "Hey, we're going to do operations that accelerate your pipeline, that, you know, bring people through faster, that, you know, engage decision makers, that, you know, do things like that." If you're using you know, their terminology to start with and not saying, you know, not walking in with your six shooter on your hip. And it's like, get ready to sit down through the four pillars of ABM, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> right. um, like that's probably a good start. Conversely, though, you do need to actually have your whole marketing team on the same page with designing your ABM strategy using a framework I'm curious, like, I want to go through this for the marketer that has never tried ABM that's listening, that doesn't really know about the, you know, the framework. What did you use? What were the things, like, how do you look at this? What would you recommend for someone who is, who is getting started? So I'm going to cheat a little bit and fast forward to the two years into it because that's the easiest place to start the conversation. And I've adopted the team framework that you see out there, you know, target, engage, activate, measure. and I usually, when somebody asks me, how do I get started on ABM? One of the first things I say is, well, what problems are you trying to solve? Because ABM means different things to different people. And even the technology vendors that play in the space of ABM, quote unquote, are all somewhat solving slightly different, but similar problems. And so usually- totally. what, that's what a great I, point. Yeah, so usually what I'm suggesting is, well, if you think about target, engage, activate, measure, do you have a fundamental problem understanding who you should be targeting and targeting them? Yes or no. Do you have a fundamental problem in engaging those targets? Yes or no. Do you have a fundamental problem in activating your sales team against the output from that engagement? Yes or no. And do you have a fundamental problem measuring the output? Yes or no. And depending on how you answer those questions, it, it can influence the the direction you go. So, so just to run through that again, 
let's say you already know who you want to target and you have excellent uh, at, you know, like excellent database of who you want to target. Well, you're not necessarily going to need help finding, you know, to get you firmographic data or geographic data. Maybe you already have all that on who you want to target. So some of the solutions maybe you don't need. Or let's say that you're like me at Phenonic and you have no names in your database at all. Well, you're not going to be deploying email anytime soon uh, if you don't have any, if you don't have any names. So maybe engaging your audience is something that you have a real problem with, which was was my problem. So programmatic account-based display was very important to me. But you know, let's say that now your your marketing crushes it. You have no problem getting output from your marketing team, but your sales team has a hard time receiving that output and actioning it. Well, then you might need solutions that help you kind of bubble up uh, who's engaging with what to your sales team and building the plays or however you want to call it against that to action your sales team. And let's say you're killing that, but you have no idea what's working or your multi-touch attribution is non-existent or, or you have no idea how to streamline or automate the reporting on, you know, what are you getting for your money? Well, then you might have a problem with your measure. And so it's super hard to answer the question in mass because different people, different organizations, different products, different verticals have different problems they're trying to solve. And I think that fundamentally, if you're trying to design a team or a tech stack, to get after it, understanding what your strengths and weaknesses are in that in that framework or in a framework to help you understand, you know, what is the what are the fundamental differences in the technology platforms you might go by and which problems are my fundamental problems I need to solve will greatly help you uh, narrow down that list. And also, to be totally honest, technology to support ABM is expensive and staff to support ABM is expensive. If you have poorly defined your problem before you start, you have a lot higher risk of buying the wrong tech or staffing the wrong staff to get after it. So I think uh, it's very important to get, you know, generally familiar with what do people mean when they say ABM and you can't, you can't read about it from one source. You have to read about it from three, four, five sources because they all have slightly different takes on it. And, but, but I think what's different today then two years ago when I was getting in on it, or maybe three years ago when I was getting in on it, is you're still you're still somewhat pioneering if you're getting into it now, but you're not on the bleeding edge if you're getting into it just now. You, there are people you can learn from, and there's a lot of really good case study material out there and a lot of really good podcast material out there, frankly, to hear from people on how they approach and solve it. And that's that's really the best the best place to start, in my opinion, is just to build your underlying fundamental understanding of what are people talking about when they say ABM and get past some of the cliche and get into the, like, what problems are people really trying to solve to help you, you know, build your criteria out for, for where you need to get started. Yeah. You know, it's funny when we went through Salesforce's, the, the four pillars of ABM, uh, which is identify key accounts, engage buyers everywhere, deliver connected engagements, and grow customer relationships. As we were working with our customers, because, you know, like for us, you know, podcasting is like the perfect ABM platform because you're identifying key accounts, you're bringing them into the content, uh, you're engaging their ecosystem because, you know, they're going to share that stuff and you're going to be able to build and grow those relationships by providing a service to people. So like when we were looking at all of this and as we talked to our customers about ABM who may or may not be doing it, it's amazing, like you said, number one, how even within ABM and within different vendors and things like that, um, how 
kind of the definitions can change or what you're solving for changes. But I think that it's it's so interesting to me that there's a real, like once you get on the same framework or more or less the same framework, then you get into the tactics. Like once you believe the strategy, you're bought in on the strategy, we know this is the framework. Then you get into the tactics piece of this, like, you know, for us, like, you know, podcasting being a form of the best form of ABM content marketing, for example. But there are so many different tactics and plays and different things that you do within this framework. But if you're not all bought in on like who your key accounts are, like if you're not agreeing on that with sales, if you're not having conversations with sales about like, how should we be engaging buyers? What are you hearing from prospects of how they'd like to be engaged and like testing hypotheses around that? Um, And like, you you know, as you said, uh, being able to measure these type of engagements, there's just no way that your actual tactics are going to be successful down the road. Yeah, or at the minimum, uh, they're not going to be nearly as successful as they could be, for sure. Uh, you know, and I think another, another, I think, valuable thing that I learned in this, and, and, and I've had a lot of conversations about those, a lot, of, a lot of different people, a lot of businesses, there's a couple of ways that people like to jump in on this. And some people, they, they get the framework, so you get the templates for ideal customer profile or whatever, and they, they jump in. 100% the, the best practice they jump in with. And there is another approach where you start basically as slim down as possible and you just get the ball rolling. And I'm sure there's approaches in between. And one of the things that I found personally is it is better to start as simply as possible and fun, just get the fundamental thinking going than to try to nail it right out the gate. Where I have talked to customer or clients of these technology platforms, you know, I, I've done a number of different like, um, like referrals and things like that. And when I'm talking to people who, who you know, they, they bought the software and they're five months in and they haven't launched anything yet, or they're trying to decide if they're going to buy the software and they've been doing an RFP for three months, but they, they can't decide. You know, and most of the time what's happening is like they're trying to get it perfect the first time. And it's very hard to do that because Number one, it's hard to do that in general. But number two, to get it quote unquote perfect, you need both sales and marketing on the same page. And if marketing is kind of pioneering this, trying to get it perfect, and you don't have any background on it, then you're never going to really get sales totally on the same page. And so in my personal opinion, starting with the most basic, uh, you know, of like just really trying to boil it down to what are the target accounts or, or even helping with like a top 10 accounts or something like that and going very narrow on what you're actually trying to do to start building some understanding of what's possible and having actual data for your company and your target audiences of, you know, how they're engaging with the stuff and then expanding out from that. It really helps you get it off the ground faster to be doing it in the context of your business versus trying to take all this kind of third-party best practice and, and just hit it hard out the gate. So I think a lot of times uh, simple is better to get you started. Yeah, so so simple is better. Let's Let's dive into that. What are some early wins that you've seen, whether it's at your company or you've seen other people get that kind of show proof of concept a little bit um, to folks that might not be fully bought in? So let me think about that for a second. So there's a couple of a couple of ways that I would I would approach that. So 
for, for example, uh, when I first started doing it in one of our really small verticals here at Phenonic, um, we were able to look at historical performance of, you know, and actually the very first uh, tactic that we had that kind of fed into as we were getting this off the ground was we had been doing some webinars over, you know, every quarter or every couple of quarters we were doing webinars and we were trying to get target accounts to the webinars and this was before I got here and we could go back and look at everybody who had come to the webinar and what accounts were represented, et cetera. And then we started running uh, programmatic display alongside it, ahead of it, and we would measure, we started measuring the lift and target accounts that showed up to the webinar. And so take, you know, applying, you know, the promise of, you know, of ABM tech or ABM tactics like programmatic display to something that your sales team or your organization has some prior experience with and then measuring the lift and performance with the, with the new approach, like webinar attendance, for example, I was able to basically illustrate that I can't, it's been a while now, but I want to say we had 46% of our target accounts attend the webinar post ABM display and something like 17% pre ABM display. And so taking something that the business was already familiar with and applying some of the the principles of, hey, let me get this targeted list with this targeted tactic with these targeted messaging and see how that influences a uh, target account attendance, help get the gears turning on, oh, this is what's possible with it. But then if I take it out from that and go to like the very broad uh, market, what we were doing in uh, healthcare, for example, is, well, uh, I have so many places I could take this, but in healthcare, for example, this is one of those scenarios where we generated all these leads, but only something like 27% of them got followed up on. And so we were just hammering sales. Why are you not following up? Why are you not following up? And we just fundamentally shifted to, well, let's only target the accounts that you want a lead at. And when we, when we had the sales, we, we picked certain sales guys in certain territories and said, if you could have a lead at any account in your territory, which would it be? And, you know, we just, went into a very specific territory with a very specific rep. We did it for two different reps and and only tried to generate leads for those accounts. And the the result of that was that every lead that was generated was something that they actually wanted. And so we started I know I say that ABM is a is a strategy and not a tactic, but we actually started it by taking some of these technology tactics and applying them, you know, along, alongside the thing that we were doing to start illustrating to the sales team and to the organization of what's possible because I think ultimately you need to you need to make it context you need to make it in the context of your business so that your business partners can better understand it. And then so long as it's kind of this nebulous idea of these things that you can go do or these things that could be possible, you you never get that that bridge in thinking on it. And so we started with that and then expanded into the, the next place we went with it actually was uh, okay, well, here's the 50 accounts that you're targeting. And in this case, there were three departments that we needed to be engaged with. So we just had said, okay, well, at each of these accounts, which departments are you not engaged with? And so we only ran tactics on engaging the departments that the sales team couldn't get into at those accounts. And so we started showing, you know, okay, well, this is one way that we can apply account-based tactics to engage specific departments at accounts where you can't get to the department, like purchasing is a great example, you know, 
purchasing people don't like to talk to salespeople, <laughs> you know? So if we can get our messaging in front of uh, purchasing people because sales just can't get past purchasing, then, then it was something we could do. So we started running these tactics alongside things that the sales team was already somewhat familiar with to start demonstrating the potential which then allowed us to continue moving, hey, if we just did this from the ground up like this, uh, you know, here's, here's what we could do. So we started, we started by looking for opportunities to apply ABM principles within what we were already doing and then taking the result of that to kind of weave the story of what's possible. And then as you, as you build, I want to say credibility, but I guess ultimately the credibility that it's possible then it's, it's less of a, oh, that doesn't work in my industry anymore. Oh, how can I get more of this? And getting over that, uh, that hurdle of believing that it's, it's a fundamentally better approach. When you talk about thinking of ways that this kind of changes the game, I love the idea of the, of the webinar, right? Which is like, at this point, like the tried and true, you know, thing that we always feel like we have to do and that, you know, we have our weekly webinar, we have this or we have that. And it's something that I think people just kind of like, you know, the webinar has been around for a long time, so no real changes around it. And to see, to hear those type of changes that you had pre-ABM and post-ABM of the way to drive engagement uh, is really, really interesting. I mean, like the idea that instead of doing a webinar every week that you just want anyone to come to, doing a webinar that you only target one account or five accounts in a certain industry or whatever it is, and just putting more thought into the activities around that rather than just saying, oh, hey, a month and a half from now, we're going to do a financial services webinar, you know, and just hope that financial services people come and that they'll self-select into that rather than targeting the seven accounts that you want to, that you want to do. Do you kind of feel like, you know, the levers in which you're using, you know, things like webinars and programmatic and all of these feel similar at times, but the way that you like structure the campaigns is different. Like is, is the way that you, you like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I know what you mean. So in its most basic sense, you're starting with a business objective you're trying to achieve for the company. Uh, let's say a revenue target for a product line. And you know that X audience is going to buy this product line and you know, you need to sell Y amount of this product. And, uh, you know, traditional lead gen says, well, let me find anybody who even loosely conforms to, to a potential buyer and get my message to as many people as possible and then sift through the result. And ABM says, I already know the 20 people who are most likely to buy this product. I am only going to spend my time and money on the 20 people who are going to buy this product or who, or who potentially are going to buy this product. And there are some, obviously, some nuance in there and some other ways of doing it. But that's essentially the difference. And so for me, when we're running ABM, we have that business objective. We have the timeline. We know the audiences that we're trying to target on the marketing side. Then sales comes to the equation and says, okay, well, here are the accounts or the firmographic characteristics of accounts that we most definitely want to be targeting. And, and then we align on that and firm up the list of accounts. And then in the context of those accounts, we actually go look for specific job titles for those accounts and make sure that we're, we're thinking about the roles outside of your, your typical marketing persona. You can take that one level deeper and actually look at actual job titles at the actual accounts now that you know where you're targeting. And so then we craft the messaging around the way those accounts are actually structured 
and the way their organizations work. Um, and then, then sales comes back and says, yep, this content makes sense for these audiences. Then we make the content, then we execute. And generally speaking, we run programmatic display, some maybe targeted social or some IP based uh, display for a period of time. To, we're trying to achieve a threshold of impressions. And then after we achieve a threshold of impressions or a certain amount of time has passed at that account, then we start layering other tactics. And typically we start layering email, outbound email that's very personalized. And then we start layering calling, outbound calling on top of that. And then within all that, you might have other tactics firing off. But what we're trying to do is number one, you want to get 100% of your accounts that you want on your list. You want to get 100% of them on your list. Number two, you want to get as close to 100% of them engaged with your content as possible. And then once they're engaged, you want to be trying to get as close to 100% of possible of the engaged accounts into your actual sales funnel because they take some action that raise their hand. And then you want to try to engage 100% of those accounts with your sales team and then, and then convert them into, into the funnel. You know, whereas something like, you know, a traditional outbound email campaign of five years ago, you have 10,000 names on your list, you send your email out and, you know, 100 of them respond. And so, so it's a very different, and your target was only ever 2%, you know, it was never 100%, right? You just knew you weren't going to do that. So yeah, to answer the question more directly, I think a lot of the tactics that you're firing off or the channels that you're using are the same or similar, but the underlying assumptions and the underlying approach of, of how you're going to actually fire them off and when you're going to fire them off, it does change a little bit because, because you have so much more context around who you're talking to and what you want to say to them. And because the volumes are smaller, you know, you're not, you're not hitting 10,000 accounts, you're hitting a hundred accounts or whatever. Um, you can, you can be much more smart about what you say and, and why you're saying it. We talk a lot about waste in marketing and how, you know, like certain waste is good waste. You, you don't really, you know, when you're trying to optimize, you know, there's no way to truly optimize unless you're experimenting with like ways that you're going to waste things. Have your viewpoints changed about like how much you waste, you know, especially since you're in the uh, making chips where, you know, classic, uh, you know, Silicon Valley 101 was creating these extremely low low error rate chips. I'm sure that waste is a big thing at your company as well from a product standpoint. So I'm just curious how you view that. Yeah. Uh, and I've grown up in manufacturing. Yeah. I spent a large part of my career at, at Danaher and, you know, uh, for anybody who knows Danaher, they're all about the DBS and, and minimizing waste and Kaizen and continuous improvement, all that. So, you know, it's kind of, it's part of my DNA now because I, I definitely grew up with that. And I'm constantly thinking about continuous improvement and waste because that's just how I grew up professionally. And so I'm all about continuous improvement. And, and I really, if I know that there's waste in the process, it just bothers me to have waste in the process. So I try to get out of the process, but at the same time, innovation requires trying new things. And, I like to think of myself as an innovator as much as as much as anyone else, and so I'm I'm obviously always trying new things. I think maybe the gray area for me has been how many times do I try it before I decide whether it's worth continuing or not. You know, typically I'll run one test or maybe two tests and then commit. You know, because I'm trying to, to go fast and maybe that's not the the absolute best way to get all of the waste out, but you know, 
one of the technologies that that exists now that wasn't available before is the degree of resolution you get into performance of a tactic and performance at a specific account. And so it's very easy for me to dial up or dial down spend at a particular account or a particular department at an account whenever I want and as frequently as I want. And so, you know, we look at it, uh, we meet with sales and look at it regularly of which accounts are engaging and which accounts aren't and do we need to move them on or off the list? You know, I think one of the big things you hear in ABM is don't stick to the same list. It should be a relatively fluid thing. I mean, don't change it all the time, but it should be fluid. And part of that is about the waste, you know, so the tools that exist now you have so much more insight into which counts are doing what with what content and at what rate and so much more control over that spend that it allows you to to dial up and dial down uh, much more than the traditional legion that I was doing in the past. You know, but also some of the testing or about going back to waste, it's also like the other side of that is efficiency. And, uh, you know, looking at, we were, we've run a lot of tests around okay, when having programmatic display and doing emailing or and doing calling, is it perform, how much better does it perform than, perform than not doing programmatic display or whatever? And we tested that for calling and for emailing specifically and that saw significant gains in performance overall. So we definitely look for the right mix uh, of tactics and we definitely look at the data to understand is the mix that we're using having a positive influence on on success, but I think that ultimately what I've seen in the last year or so is that the amount of money that I'm spending hasn't really changed. It's where I'm spending the money that's changed. And if anything, the amount of money has gone up over time that I'm spending, but where I'm spending it is changing. And the the degree of insight into what I got for that spend is so much better than it was. I mean, yeah, that's a great point. I, I think it's just so fascinating, the idea, you know, like we had the qualified founders on, um, and we're in the process of setting that up for for some of our shows so that, you know, people who reach out to us can do so in a more efficient manner. But like the idea that if 15 people are on your website and if they all, and, you know, five of them all click that they want more information right now and you want to have them talk to a to an individual person right now, right? that those would be triaged for you ahead of time, mm-hmm. that the top priority account goes to your top rep that is supposed to be handling that sort of thing in real time. And then you can do marketing automation that sends them personalized follow-ups based off of that stuff is like off the charts exciting. And I think things like that just are so fun for the future. And like, yeah, you, the the spend might increase, but the way in which that you're decreasing waste, I think, like you're so much more efficient with the spend potentially. Like that stuff is just great. I'm curious, like, what do you, what do you think about like conversational marketing that? Yeah. Um, So I'm sorry, can you restate that question? What do I think about? Like conversational marketing and, um, you know, having things like qualified or drift or things like that on on your website as it relates to ABM. Yeah. Drift and I actually I got the book from from the guy who uh, started Drift and I was reading reading that recently. I think it's actually called Conversational Marketing. And um, <laughs> and, I, and I've been I haven't finished the book, but I've been reading it. And uh, it is I think all 
it goes back to actually some data that I saw at Salesforce Connections, this past Connections in Chicago, where they were talking about how essentially buyers expect personalized experiences and buyers expect tailored experiences and buyers are actually willing to give up personal information for a better experience, but they expect you to have to be smart with their data and not and not abuse it. And I think if I think about uh, maybe two or three years ago, there was so much around like opt-in email and, you know, even a lot around like Castle and stuff like that. And then there's always been a hot thing, you know, how we how we as marketers take care of, of people's data, but it had always had this kind of slant of you better take care of my data, you know, kind of slant, like almost like the passive aggressive giving up of the data. And now it feels more like uh, people acknowledge that they just have to give up some amount of data, but in exchange for that data, they want a more fluid, more tailored experience. And things like, and that's somewhat cliche for me to be referencing this, but things like Amazon and things like your Netflix experience where you log in and your wife sees one thing and you see another thing, you know, because because it's all tailored to what you're doing. And so I think about how technology is making the user experience more fluid and less rigid and more tailored. And people are just having a shift in expectations. And previously, your big dollar brands were getting after this as a competitive advantage. And now it's becoming where you're on the track of it being more of a table stakes game where it's going to be a competitive disadvantage if you're not getting after this. And so then I think about conversational marketing, things like Drift, for example, and it's not entirely the same thing as what I'm just saying, but the fluidity, I guess, of that conversation on the website interacting with the bot, or which then turns into a person, you know, and the fluidity of that, I guess, conversation that you're having, even if it is with a bot. And I think some of the best brands, like one of my favorite brands is Uberflip, and the way, like, I, they send out automation from, I think it's Robot at at, uh, at Uberflip, and it starts up, beep, boop, 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 beep, you know, like, like they, they're fully acknowledging as a ro- robot. Like, people know it's a robot, but that experience of that more fluid, less rigid, it's not five fields on a form, it's more conversational, is what people uh, expect and what they want. And... A little bit of that, to just backtrack a little bit, uh, feeds into gated versus ungated content as well. And when do you gate, when do you not gate? And in the context of ABM, you know, I think the conversation around gated or ungated is a really interesting conversation because if you're doing ABM, like I'm doing ABM, I already know the account that I'm serving the ad to. I already know the role of the account that I'm serving the ad to. And I already know my value prop is a strong value prop. I don't need the person to fill out the form to read my value prop. I want them to read my value prop. And so I've almost entirely eliminated gate from what I do because they, you just don't need them anymore. And I think that feeds into the conversational marketing piece and the, and the things like what Drift are doing. And it's interesting to see how people are using that. And, and, and I've certainly explored it extensively and I haven't committed one way or the other on whether I'm going to adopt uh, something like direct. But I do think that it ultimately comes down to people want good experiences. People don't like friction in the buying process and technology exists today to provide better experiences with the data and to eliminate friction. And anything you can do as a marketer to provide a better experience and eliminate friction 
is something you should probably be doing or considering. So conversational marketing, I think, is is kind of a natural evolution of that thinking. Yeah, it's the extension of the salesperson's conversation. And I, I love that piece about, you know, gated content because I think, you know, like one of the things that we've seen is so like let's say, you know, a CFO listens to a podcast episode with one of your leaders on it, the leaders of your company, and goes to check out the website, that person is never going to fill out a lead form. Like the CFO, the CIO, people influence a buying decision are not filling out a lead form ever, right? So in kind of the old way of thinking is like that person was never going to become a lead. But if that person comes to your website, you want to have a dialogue with them as fast as humanly possible to answer any questions that they have because they're doing diligence on the deal that's probably sitting on their desk, right? So like that type of shift of like in the past, like are we going to be running, you know, campaigns for for the CFO? Like probably not. That might be seen as waste, but now we have like the level of influence on a deal or a buying process is super important. And like, are we making CFO content for them? Like maybe, maybe not. But again, if they come to our website, we want to be able to have the conversation and answer any questions that they have. Yeah. And I think if I think I've done a lot of website stuff in my life and think about UX and the context of website and so much of UX is is delivering an experience that people that comes naturally to people and that doesn't uh, like jar them out of whatever it is that they're doing. And good websites, you can like flow through the site and it's a it's a seamless experience. You can find what you're looking for. And bad websites, they jar you out of what you're trying to do and you leave or whatever. And and I think as you know, things like less and less people gating content and more and more people just uh, moving into things like conversational marketing. Like back to what I was saying earlier, I think it's going, instead of it being a competitive advantage to be doing it, I think it's going to be a competitive disadvantage if you're not doing it because eventually people just aren't going to want to fill out forms. I and mean, people already don't want to fill out forms anywhere. But if you're banking on somebody filling out a form, like the more people get away from, well, the more practitioners get away from using forms, the more of an outlier you're going to be as a marketer who's still using forms and the less likely that person is to fill out the form, especially if your competition's not using it. And so, yeah, I think that forms are a relic of of the past uh, to to a degree, uh, and I understand there are some exceptions to that. But the, the yeah, for certain businesses, today, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's just, I mean, it just depends on what you're doing. But I think, yeah. No, I was just gonna say, like, yeah, if you're if you're like you know focusing on like SMBs or something like that, and you're like true, you know, if you're not doing you know B two B, you have two hundred eighty named accounts that you're going after or something like that. Like, of course, like forms. Yeah. Uh, you know, or whatever it is, any type of email capture or subscriber capture, obviously, you know, marketing automation and building a subscriber list is hugely important if you're, if you're doing it in the right way. But yeah, to your point, it's like, we already know who you are. We already know when you come to our site that it's valuable and we know that we're trying to get you there. So when we do get you there, it's more of a measure of, are you there? Are you engaged rather than to have them re-input their data, um, how do you how do you measure engagement? Yeah, everyone is talking about engagement. Engagement is the name of the game. Every single you know framework has engagement as a huge part of this. What do you see in there? Uh, uh, quantitatively, there's a couple of ways that we measure it. Uh, we have kind of aggregate account level scoring of 
you know, all these people are taking all these actions of adding points up into a model that says you're, you're X amount engaged, you know, so we have stuff like that. And then we look at things like how many unique people are engaging from a given account and how many minutes on average are they spending or how many pieces of content are they consuming with both on an individual and at an account level to to look for you know spikes in activity uh, or spikes in certain kinds of activities to change their priority in the in the flow of what we're doing, you know. So we're we're kind of exploring a few different ways of measuring that. And actually, the big problem that I have now is is how do I take the engagement that we're measuring it and make it more accessible to my sales team and cut noise from that to make the more obvious to the sales team of, of who who's doing what and why. And so a lot, a lot of what I'm actually literally doing this quarter is fixing some of that to make it more seamless. But I think in general, if I can get my target account to see and consume my content, and if I can make good content and I, and if I have a good value prop, I'm just trying to provide the best experience I can with my brand and with my content so that the the audience sticks around and reads what I've got for them to read and, and hopefully it's relevant to them and if I've done my job well and it either resonates or it doesn't resonate and if it does resonate eventually uh, they take action on that if it doesn't then then it doesn't resonate and we move on no yeah I was just gonna say I I love that approach and and I'm curious like if you say you know between 13 and 16 impressions equal sales. So, hey, we need to create, you know, ideally we have 20 pieces of content that are anchors for us that we want them to spend time with. You know, if they spend time with 10 of those or five of those, then that's like a huge win. Or like, how do you stay like front of mind versus depth? You know, you see like these huge like state of Salesforce that IBM Blue Wolf does. That's like this monster, super deep, engaging thing that people spend hours and hours and hours and hours reading and looking at and researching. So you get the depth of engagement there, but maybe not the repeated hits on that or something. You know, I'm just curious how you how you kind of, you know, waffle between those two things of frequency versus depth. Yeah, great question. And the frequency is so frequency is a very interesting thing. And I've spent a lot of time looking at frequency and improving that. And like, like I mentioned, a lot of our, a lot of our campaign, I think our, really all of our campaigns have some underlying programmatic display running alongside it. And we've done a lot of looking at, well, how frequently do we need to change the ads and how dramatic of a change do the ads need to be? And, and even what are the frequency caps on the ads and what kind of influence does that have on the overall engagement? And we've changed, you know, from static to animated to more sophisticated animated, et cetera. And we absolutely have seen significant differences in account engagement over certain thresholds of impressions of ads. And we look at it quarter over quarter, every quarter, and that threshold has changed a little bit from, from time to time. But it's, it's, it's been consistently between 6,000 and 10,000 impressions at the account. And once you're over that threshold, the number of unique people that come in the site, the average number of pages, the average time on site, the overall engagement in general from the account is like substantially different, like uh, 97% lift and stuff like that, um, pulling from memory that you see. And so we've done a lot around optimizing the frequency at which we release ads and the type of content that we put into the ads 
to be top of mind and to get over that 10,000 impression mark. But then also we have been exploring interesting new types of content. For example, where we just put out actually literally today, I think it's available on the app store, uh, a new AR app to basically get our product in your hands, figuratively speaking, through uh, augmented reality so you can see it and experience the customer experience of the product with some really interesting and deeply engaging content. And so trying to better convey the value prop and the, the use case of the product. And so, so, you know, in terms of balancing the two, for me on the frequency side of things, it has really just become as smartly as possible get to the account over the threshold of impressions, so to speak, you know, and and a little bit uh, threshold of aggregate score to consider that account, quote unquote, engaged. And, uh, and there's a way, a number of ways and tactics that we are engaging that account, but engage the accounts fully. And then as you're engaging these accounts, proactively put good content in front of them through other kinds of tactics or similar tactics that are encouraging uh, deeper interaction in the in in our content and with our brand, so that we can continue the conversation even if it's passively with them of what we do and why we do it and why you should be interested in it to to basically allow the audience to determine for themselves whether they're interested or not and if they're interested uh, take the next step and so. So, I mean, definitely frequency versus depth is an interesting balance. And I think it probably is going to depend entirely on your audience and your product and your value prop and all that kind of stuff. But I can say from experience that there are, there's a, there's a measurable difference uh, when you have quote unquote engaged or not engaged the account at that threshold level. And it has been extreme, it's been very consistent quarter over quarter for the two years we've been doing this. There is a clear, distinct difference in how those accounts are engaging once they once they get over that threshold. And so, I definitely think frequency is important. But but then also you can't always be the same ad, and you gotta. I mean, there's there's lots of nuance around that frequency. But frequency is definitely important. But then, you know, the cliche phrase that content is king. Like I think content was content was king, and that was a new thing. And then it became cliche. Everybody says content is king. And now I'm coming back around to, oh, content really is king. And it's, it's, it sounds stupid to say that out loud, but what I mean is that it's almost a foregone conclusion now that marketing can engage its target audience, or at least for me it is. I know I can engage my target audience. That's not my problem anymore. And uh, you know, my problem is getting the value prop meaningfully in front of them and having them take that next step. And so I've been looking for, we've been looking for new and interesting ways to differentiate the brand through content and a lot of our budget, you know, that campaign that might've cost $15,000 a month before might cost me $600 a month now because it's a different type of ad campaign. Well, that $15,000 didn't disappear. It went into something else. And, you know, that might've been a high quality video or an AR app or some other type of content experience to better engage that and differentiate that engagement with the audience. So that's a super long way to answer, but I think both are obviously very important. I think the frequency thing is is crucial, but I also think the depth of engagement is too. So, 
Yeah, I you know, I love that because it's like a comedian that's funny on Twitter versus and someone who can do a stand-up special, right? If they're just funny on Twitter, you're just going to follow them on Twitter, right? But you're never going to go pay for their stand-up special. Uh, or well, I guess you don't pay for those anymore because they just pretty much come out on Netflix. But you're not going to watch their, <laughs> their stand-up special. And you kind of need both, right? You want someone to be able to spend an hour with you potentially, but you also want to be, you know, front of mind kind of all the time. Okay, last question before the lightning round. You have been using GIFs a lot, and you touched on the augmented reality thing, which I think is really cool as well. Two different sides of the coin here. One, super deep experience. Other one, uh, a short, funny thing. I think that, you know, as we're talking about depth versus frequency, this is kind of like the perfect yin and yang example, right? Of two different types of campaigns that have two totally different different results. Uh, I'm curious though about the gifts piece. Did it work? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that I actually wrote a little article on this recently on, on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, I think it started something that was like a year ago, somebody told me I should do gifts. And I said, yeah, that's great, but I don't have time for that. And now I wish I had gotten into it a year ago. I mean, the short answer is absolutely uh, it works. I think, though, that it's more complicated than that. And if I could expand on that, I think ultimately your ad is only as good as the message that you put in the ad. And if your messaging is not good, you're not going to get magic out of any format of ad. But, you know, if I had to speculate, the GIF has done two things for me. One it helps me pop on the page. And two, it helps me tell a story, a, a better story in the messaging than what a static ad can do. And, you know, for one thing, you only have so many words in a static ad. But for another thing, in an animation, you can have a little mini movie of a story that you're trying to, to tell. And people like stories, you know. Uh, and so... So not only did we change from static to GIF, uh, well, really, originally I changed from static to GIF to pop on the page and be more visible on the page was why I thought I was doing it. But after I started changing from static ads to animated ads, I realized the potential in the storytelling element that you can get done in a five-frame GIF or, or, or whatever is the case. And so we moved to uh, five frames, three seconds each, and five seconds on the last frame, and it's just it just repeats. In the last frame being your call to action or whatever. And all of our ads have always been, or generally speaking, have been buyer journey driven and and keying off of certain pain points that we know our target audiences have. But in a static ad, you pick one pain point because you can only fit one in there, and you. You pick the best one and you write the best thing and you and you serve it up and you take it down a few weeks later and you put another one up. And with the GIF, I was able to tell a more holistic story around pain points that my target audience has, not a pain point. And I really think the combination of the popping off the page because it's animated and the storytelling aspect is the magic sauce. And that's why I say ultimately you're not going to get any magic if your message is not good. But if your message is good, you can do so much more with it with GIF. So specifically, you know, our our ads traditionally have done pretty well. And that's what I said this earlier. We used uh, Terminus account-based display to, to get most of our ads out. And historically, our ads have done well compared to the whole data set of Terminus customers, or at least that's what Terminus tells me. And uh, I think something like an average in 2018 of like a half a percent click-through rate. And when we moved to GIFs, 
we went from a half a percent in these target campaigns to literally, literally to 5% click through. And that was in the first, uh, that was at the end of the first 30 days of the gifts running. And so we saw absolutely crazy huge gain in click through on the ads going from half percent to five percent. Then we made some additional changes and went from five to six and a half percent. And now we're doing some more changes again that I haven't launched them yet. So we'll see how that goes to continue exploring the opportunity that is animation. But overall across our entire account, and I think something like this is based off of five and a half million impressions, we saw I I think it was actually literally right at a 100%. I'm doing this from memory. It was very close to a 100% uh, lift in click-through rate at the aggregate level across our entire account. Not all ads are running our gifts. Uh, we, we've been transitioning you know, by campaign, so we still run some statics too. But year over year, 19 versus 18, even just having the gifts only running in the last quarter or quarter and a half, we saw a 100% lift in overall account performance. Uh, for the click-throughs, but even the specific campaigns, you saw those massive gains. So ultimately, I think intuitively, when you think about it, it's not surprising that a GIF would, would beat a static ad. But the reason why it beats the static ad, that was surprising to me uh, in that it's not just that it's moving, it's in what you can do with that movement and the opportunity that it gives you in the storytelling of that you know, a little quick ad that you're running. And uh, so, yeah, absolutely, totally recommend trying GIFs. I mean, you know, if anything, try it. And I'll be totally upfront. I, we paid our creative agency $2,000 for the first set of GIFs because I had no idea what I was doing. And I was like, hey, can you do this? I have $2,000, go try it. And that's a lot of money for me for a set of ads. But I wanted to spend the money and try it. So we built all these different GIFs to try it. And I'm very glad that I did. And the moral of that story is, even if it costs you more, even substantially more than what it normally costs you to build a set of ads, assuming you can write good messaging, uh, spend the money to at least try it because those kinds of gains and click-through are, I mean, it was, it was huge for us. And I, I'm not the only one that's had a good experience converting to, to gifts, but my experience was was really remarkable. And uh and now I'm in the process of moving everything everything to, to get as fast as possible. I mean, there's some downsides, right? They take longer to build. They're more expensive to build. Uh, you know, so you, you, don't, you lose some of the nimbleness of the gifts. But we actually hired a freelance guy who sits in the office now to crank them out faster so that we can keep going because it's that big of a, of a difference to us. I mean, I know I'm talking about this a lot, but ultimately, if you think about you have very few chances to make a first impression on an audience and why not make the best impression you can and uh, and telling a more complete story like what you can with a GIF versus a static is that much better of an opportunity to tell your story to your target audience. So it makes total sense to me in the context of, of what I'm doing and I'm very glad that I did it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. We did a bunch of experiments with GIFs as well. The funny thing is if you post the GIFs, on like Giphy or wherever it is, you also get a lift on that. So it's not just that like you you can use them for ads. Like we had like 70,000 people use one of our GIFs that was, it was pretty funny. It was like, you know, uh, something for podcasts, but it was like Toasty, our office dog <laughs> running around doing something with like, you know, that was pretty funny. And it started ranking for, for like podcast or something like that. 
and people were like finding a right and left or it was like podcast dog or something. I forget what it was. But like that's the other piece is like if you make something good, it's not just that it can be used as an ad. It can actually be used like people you can just put it on a on a gift platform and people can steal it, which is pretty great when it's your branding. Yeah. Yeah. If that works for you. Absolutely. OK, this has been awesome, but I know you got to get out of here. Let's. Let's get into the lightning round. These questions are fast and easy, just like marketing automation with Pardot. You can go to pardot.com slash podcast to learn more about B2B marketing on the world's number one CRM that is Salesforce. We love Pardot. We love marketing automation. You should check them out if you haven't already. Lightning round questions. Daniel, are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, what app on your phone is the most fun? Uh, well, I have a five-year-old son and we have been very much into Pokemon Go recently. So, uh, you know, I'm telling stories of myself, but I would say the one I'm having the most fun with right now with my son is Pokemon Go. What is the last photo on your phone right now? The last photo on my phone? It's probably a picture of my daughter. My wife texted me a picture of my daughter who thought that story time at the library, she's three, was running around saying hello to everybody, disrupting story time. So she sent me a little picture of that. So I think that's actually the last, the last picture on my phone right now because she texted that to me before this call. What's your favorite TV show, book, or podcast that you're uh, you're watching or listening to? Oh, that's a great question. Um well, I just I just uh, finished Neil Stevenson's uh, latest science fiction, which was really interesting. I just finished that one, so I'm not technically reading. And I just started reading a book called Launchpad, which is on uh, Silicon Valley startup land, and it's been an interesting read. So I'm getting through that one right now. Yeah, the, we just had uh, Neil Stevenson on on one of our podcasts, Mission Daily. Him and uh, him and Chad, our CEO, had a grand old time. He's he's awesome. Yeah, I'm a huge fan technology you're most excited about for the future of marketing? That's tough. I mean, I'm going to have to answer this two ways. Uh, I think that on a con from a content perspective, I'm very excited about augmented reality. I think there's no better way to get unique experience with your product uh, to your audience than through augmented reality because of their environment. So I think there's so many legs on augmented reality, but if I can look at the technology side of MarTech and technology, as cliche as it is, I think AI AI is coming and in many ways it's here and it's going to be very interesting to see how AI applies in the world of marketing technology. And it's going to be interesting to see in five, 10 years what jobs even exist in marketing and MarTech, you know, post post the AI, you know, coming of AI, so to speak. So I'm, I'm very interested to see how AI continues to develop in the field of of MarTech, but I'm also very interested to see what brands do with augmented reality. So, Daniel, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show. This was truly the masterclass in ABM. I feel like we we could have gone for another hour uh, or many more, but uh, uh, we'll have to have you back. This has been great. Any final stuff to plug? Anything we should check out? Well, I'm always talking about and sharing uh, ABM-related stuff on LinkedIn. So feel free to check me out on LinkedIn uh, and I do my best to, to share the latest that I'm up to on an ongoing basis. So happy to connect. Yeah. And also, I mean, we'll have to talk more about uh, Phenonic next time, but just an exceptionally cool company and like heating and cooling is 
it's uh, it's really an exciting time and the stuff that you've built being able to have these uh heating and cooling that are that are so portable that are small and everything i mean it's really really cool stuff if people are want to check it out it's uh it's one of those old school problems it's hundreds and thousands of years old making stuff hotter and cooler and uh it's really really interesting to see uh the technology and and what you all are are building fanatic.com we'll link it up in the show notes yeah thanks for that all right talk soon Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is created by the team at Mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot. World-class marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast or click on the link in the show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, The messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.